1 Corinthians 16, we're back in verses 13 through 24. Church, responsibility and accountability. The dictionary definition of responsibility, according to the Webster's 1828 at least, uh, way back then, is this, the state of being accountable or answerable as for a trust or office or for a debt. The state of being accountable or answerable. We talked this morning about the fact that responsibility is not something that is optional. It's something that is expected. It's something that is necessary. Perhaps it, we might say that it is optional as to whether we assume the responsibilities that we ought, but it's not optional as to whether we have responsibilities. And as we consider it this evening, we first remember what we considered this morning that doctrinal purity is essential as a responsibility of the church, that it's a charge that God has placed upon you and I as believers to maintain the purity of the church and, and this make, or of the faith. And this makes sense. After all, the world's not going to do it, right? The world isn't going to maintain purity of doctrine. They're not going to be the ones to guard it. And we have seen throughout history that um, every attempt has been made to stamp out Christianity, to stamp out sound doctrine. For a thousand years, the Catholic Church tried to do it. New Age movements tried to do it. This emergent church that's now uh, quite well underway is, is trying to do it. Postmodernism tried to do it. Islam is trying to do it. And if God's church is not the one to defend the faith, then nobody will. It's a responsibility that we have. And that was the point that we looked at this morning. Two more points this evening in the second half of this message that we are going to consider. First, that the church is responsible to willingly submit to qualified spiritual leaders. That'll be in verses 15 through 18. And then... Second this evening, third in total, the church is responsible to remove the disobedient from their fellowship. And we're going to dive right in because I'm going to hit a couple of, um, don't want to call them tangents, don't even really want to call them rabbit trails, but we're going to review a few things that we've talked about before, particularly in this idea of qualified spiritual leaders. This topic doesn't always come up, so when it does, it behooves us to think about it. So let's begin in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, and we'll read through verse 18 for uh, as we consider this second point. Scriptures say, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and to every one that helpeth with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. Paul's second exhortation is that the church would be willing, would willingly submit themselves to those leaders in the church who have shown themselves to be qualified, who have shown themselves to have walked according to sound doctrine. Now, presumably, 
we see this man and his family, Stephanus. And Stephanus and his family, the scriptures say that they had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And it appears that they had indeed actually at some point ministered to Paul outside of, of the area of Corinth, as, as the scriptures say that um, Stephanus and his family helped with them and labored with them. He said in verse 17, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. So at some point, Stephanus and, and then these two other men, Fortunatus and Achaicus, uh, came to him, to Paul, and um, ministered to his needs and quite likely gave, them, gave Paul the report that Paul was so concerned about he felt the need to write to the Corinthian church. And the fact that Paul gives this command to submit to these men just after his call that they earnestly contend for the faith is telling. It seems likely that, um, as I mentioned, Stephanus had been one of the men in the church that had informed Paul of the problems that had been going on in Corinth. It seems likely as well that Stephanus was busy earnestly contending for doctrinal purity in the midst of the mess that was the Corinthian church. And for it, most likely, Stephanus and his family was being marginalized. They were perhaps even being attacked, perhaps being ignored for their attempts to hold the sound doctrine. So when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus come to Paul and minister to his needs, and Paul says, hey, how's your church doing? And Stephanus goes, oh boy, Paul. There's this guy in the church and he's fornicating with his mother-in-law. There's these two guys and they're fighting over something and they're going before law. They're going before unbelieving judges. We, we're, we're confused on marriage. We're confused on the spiritual gifts. There's even guys in the church that are preaching that Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead. That there's no such thing as a resurrection. Paul, we're, we're in bad shape right now. There have been men that have somehow made their way into our midst that are confusing us. They're Greek philosophers. They're, they're the thinkers of their day and they're trying to just confuse everything. Paul, we're in a bit of a straight. And Paul says, okay, I've got to write a letter. I've got to write a letter to straighten these guys out. Most likely that is what had happened. And so as Stephanus and perhaps Fortunatus and Icacus come back, Paul wants them to come back to submission as church leaders, not to marginalization or attack. You know, there are many men and women who call themselves ministers of the gospel and claim to represent God who are frankly unqualified to do so. Whether they, have, uh, they fail to qualify for the ministry because they do not teach the truth of God or because they do not meet the moral and practical qualifications of a spiritual teacher, Paul is not advocating that the church submit themselves to anybody and everybody who would call themselves a church leader or call themselves a teacher. More recently in the news, there are a couple of men who call themselves reverends who are anything but representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are stirring up hatred, contempt. They are stirring up division. They are political partisans. They are wicked men, but they have reverend in front of their name. The church is not to submit to everybody who comes claiming that they represent the Bible 
or represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The submission of the church to a spiritual leader or teacher is expected only in those situations where the man in question proves his integrity, his faith, his knowledge, and exhibits the clear manifestation of a man called by God unto church leadership, such as the teaching of the Scriptures. And I'd like us to turn to a few of these passages this evening. Please begin by turning with me to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. We begin here not because it's the best example of, of expectations of a minister, but because it gives us a definition of the pastor, bishop, elder. Uh, there are churches that break up men in different ranks by different names, and, and that's fine. But what we must understand from Scripture is that the idea of a bishop of an elder and of a pastor are indeed the same office. There are two offices that are presented as distinct in the scriptures, the office of the pastor-teacher and the office of the deacon. Those are the two that are seen as something different. Elders, are it's a synonymous term with pastor, which is a synonymous term with bishop. You say, well, pastor, how do we know that? Look with me in 1 Peter 5, beginning verse 1. Peter says, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And uh, per, if you, if you uh, see the screen behind me, what you'll notice, uh, if you, you take a look at those Greek words, and, and again, we, we don't typically try to prove our theology with the Greek, but what we see is that the elders that were in the church were commanded to do two particular things. The first thing they were commanded to do was to feed, that word literally meaning to shepherd. It's the word that we often translate pastor. The elders were called by God to pastor the flock of God and then to take oversight. That word being the word that is typically uh, um, translated either oversight or bishopric. The idea of being a bishop in the scriptures. And so we see that the elder was called upon by God both to pastor the flock of God and to bishop the flock of God. To feed the flock, and to oversee the flock. Now, this doesn't mean that it has to be one man. In this church, as of right now, you have one pastor. I feed the flock, I oversee the flock, I oversee everything having to do with the flock, I, I, I oversee the music. Uh, Lord willing, one day that will not be the case. <laughs> um, I, I would love to be able to put more time and effort into the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God and put a little less time and effort into singing um, which is not one of my skills, and uh, some of the other elements of the church that um, happen, have to happen, always have to happen. Um, you wonder why some things get kind of brushed under the rug, some things get overlooked. Well, it's because your pastor has a lot of things that he's thinking about and, and there's a priority list. And, and, and so, so it doesn't mean that, that one pastor has to do it all. But what it does mean is that every man that does these things is intended to be on the same level of, of spiritual qualification. The man that is leading the church physically, 
perhaps dealing with the business side of things, has to have the same qualifications as the man who is feeding the flock of God spiritually. Because it's the same office. They are the elder, the pastor, the bishop, the men that lead the church. And while we're here, let's take a brief look at what God says He wants these men to do. Feed the flock of God, He says. Taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but as an example or an example to the flock. God's pastors, bishops, elders are intended to carefully and lovingly feed, lead, and protect the church. They are not to keep the people in line through manipulation, through threatening. I'm not supposed to lord over you and say, if you leave this church, then God hates you. Or if you don't do things my way, then you're not going to heaven. I am not to do what I do for money. My motivation is not to be uh, to, to squeeze money out of God's people or I'm here. Uh, boy, I can't tell you how many times I heard this in high school and college. These guys that were headed towards ministry because it seemed like a pretty easy living. Right? Because, I mean, uh, I want to go, I want to be a youth pastor because, I mean, how cool is it that I get to get paid to play with kids all day, right? Uh, completely missing the point. And notice how typical these problems are in the context of false teachers. False teachers do what they do through manipulation or through fear. They do it because they know people will give money to spiritual leaders in a way that they might not otherwise give because they perceive some sort of spiritual benefit for it. And so, Peter says, don't be this way. Don't compel them, constrain them to you have your flock come to you willingly. Don't do it for money. Do it for love. And don't lord yourself over them in some sort of heavy-handed leadership. If you want to lead them, don't lead them with the whip. Lead them by example. That's why we do things the way we do in this church. That's why on Accountability Sunday, nobody has to quote their Bible verses until pastor does. Because how dare I stand up here and tell you all you need to quote your Bible verses and memorize your Bible verses when, you're, when your pastor doesn't. That's, that's not leadership, that's compulsion. And so we lead by example. That is what God has called His people, His pastors, to do. If I want you to see what it means to read the Bible, to pray, to memorize Scripture... The best way I can show you how important it is is by doing it myself. That is the pastor. Now turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy 3. This is where we see the true and the deep, um, comprehensive list of qualifications, not just responsibilities, as we would see in, in Peter, but th- these are the actual qualifications. This is what, what Paul presents. It's also found in Titus 1. But this is what Paul presents as the expectation if a man desires the office of a bishop, if he wants to get into this area of oversight or feeding the flock, this is the kind of man he needs to be. We'll begin in verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. 
A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being filled up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then we see in the next several verses the the expectations upon deacons, which um, we won't speak on this evening. I'm not speaking comprehensively, but more of an overview fashion this evening. This passage presents definitive qualifications for a man who desires to be a pastor, a bishop, an elder, one who is responsible to teach and to guide the flock of God, and also, of course, the deacon, one who is responsible to take the responsibilities off of the pastor and to assume some of the the church's responsibilities in order that the pastor can dedicate his time to the ministry of the Word of God and of prayer. And according to this passage... There are several qualifications. We'll go through this list, not quickly, although um, we will park for just a moment on the ones that are most controversial. First, he must indeed be a man. Pastor must be a man. Now, contrary to modern teaching, the Bible is not ambiguous on this point. Look with me just one chapter earlier, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. He says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. The passage is unambiguous, is it not? Women are not to have a position of teaching spiritual authority over a man, specifically in the church setting. Rather, she is to exhibit the virtues of godly submission as taught in Scripture, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, as we see in um, 1 Timothy 2, as we see in 1 Peter 3. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians, we see a similar command. 1 Corinthians 14, I mentioned, verse 34, the Scriptures say this, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. Now again, we see that women are not to assume an active role, authoritative speaking role in the church. Now this passage, as we consider this prohibition, we, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians 14. And we found that the text is not saying that women can't open their mouths in the assembly. We know that. The text is not saying that women are not allowed to speak not allowed to pray, not allowed to give prayer requests, not allowed to um, ask questions. Those things are fine. But rather, they, have no, they are to have no authoritative teaching, um, authoritative is a great word, voice in the church as it relates to teaching and leadership. Like in the home, God has ordained that women are to be biblically submissive in the church. And we went through this quite... quite um, in in quite a lot of detail when we were there in 1 Corinthians 14. We're not going to park on it tonight. I encourage you, if um, you're curious, if you don't remember it, if you're you're interested in what was said there, to get onto the website and look at that message in 1 Corinthians 14 for further clarity. 
So it's expected that, that the, the pastor, the elder, the bishop would be a man. He must also, the scriptures say, be blameless. Blameless. Not that men think him perfect, but that he has a good testimony. And that will become um, even more emphasized in verse 7, that he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. And then it also says that he must be the husband of one wife. This is the most controversial of all of the expectations. And we talked about this controversy way back in 1 Corinthians 7. It's amazing how much we covered in this book, isn't it? Way back in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking about divorce and remarriage. And I'll uh, refer you to that. You don't have to turn. It'll be on the screen or you may turn certainly. 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to read verses 10 through 15. Scripture says, Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife, but to the rest I speak, uh, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, <clears throat> excuse me, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now, these verses present two particular concepts which are very important. That is, when a person gets saved, well, first, we see the command of the Lord in verses 10 and 11, that the wife not depart from the husband, that the husband not depart from the wife, that if one depart from the other, that they are to remain unmarried, that they are not to get remarried. This is the end of the commandment as per Jesus Christ's teaching. Paul makes that clear. He says, the rest of it will be my insight into your particular kind of strange circumstances, Corinth. Because, see, in Corinth, the problem was, as with probably many of these towns in uh, Asia and, and uh, Achaia and Macedonia, there had already been a lot of this. So what do we do, Paul? What do we do when there's already been divorces and remarriages and, and there's already been um, these circumstances and, and now I'm in a marriage and I got saved and my wife did not and she hates the fact that I'm a Christian and uh, she wants to leave me, but I don't want her to leave because we're not supposed to get divorced. What do we do here, Paul? And so Paul says, well, if, 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 you're, if you're married and you have an unbelieving spouse and they're happy to stay with you, well then, great. Let them stay with you. That's, that's a wonderful thing. But what happens when they're not? And, and notice he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And I tried to explain that to you. And how I believe, what I believe the Bible says here is this. When a person gets saved, the family to which they are a part is set apart by God. Do you remember me teaching this? This does not mean that the other members of the family are saved by default, but it does mean that a believer is obligated by God to operate within the context of God's rules as it pertains to family. If one, if, if, if the husband is saved, then he needs to treat his wife and his children the same whether they're believers or not. He needs to fall under God's rules. That means the believing wife is still obligated to fully submit to her husband even if her husband's an unbeliever. 
That means the believing husband is fully obligated to love his wife as Christ loves the church, even if his wife is an unbeliever. That means that a believing parent is still obligated to love and care for their children and to seek and to guide them into godliness, even if they're unbelievers. But I also take this to mean that it is only when one is saved that the qualifications of God concerning divorce and remarriage as per God's commandments go into effect. And let me, let me explain what I mean there. Just like any other failure of sin prior to salvation, those failures don't really carry into our believing lives spiritually. We're forgiven. We're remitted. Consequences carry into salvation, obviously. Our sins have consequences. They will carry over whether we get, you know, even after we get saved. But these consequences will never be spiritual in nature. We're memorizing a verse right now, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We don't carry the weight of our spiritual failures into our new life in Christ. So when we consider this idea that, at the t- that it is at the time of salvation that either husband or wife um, in that family is set apart as being obligated to God's standards, So when the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, this is a family that because there is a believer in that family, this family is set apart unto God. That before that, this family was still certainly under God's law as per the law that's written on our hearts, but not under God's commandments as per unto Christians. It stands to reckon that relationships that a man and woman had prior to any salvation in the family were not sanctified if the family is sanctified by salvation and therefore fall under the same grace as any other sin committed prior to Christ. So just as a man could have been a great, deep alcoholic prior to him understanding salvation and getting saved and then being redeemed from that sin, or a man was a tremendous adulterer prior to salvation and being redeemed from that sin, so too, divorce is not an unredeemable sin. And, and so I personally believe this verse tells us that the person who has been divorced and remarried and done these things prior to salvation has not disqualified himself for ministry in much the same way that a drunk or a fornicator is not disqualified for ministry after he is saved and redeemed from his life of sin. Rather, I believe Paul is speaking within the context of believers here, saying that when you do, you are a believer, you are now obligated to the expectations of God for a believing family. Even if your family is a group of unbelievers, you are now a part of a sanctified family before God. Sanctified unto the expectations of God for that family. Therefore, there is no allowance by God for divorce. And of course, Paul says, now if the unbeliever divorce, leave you. He says, in those cases, you as the believer are not under obligation by God to pursue reconciliation because God has called us unto peace. And of course, there's no peace in a house divided. Now you say, pastor, that's really confusing. I don't quite understand what you were trying to teach there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 7. My, my sermon on that. I preach it much more thoroughly and you can get a greater idea of, of, of the difference that, that I believe the Scriptures quite clearly, in fact, paint 
as to a believing family versus an unbelieving family and the obligations upon a believing family as opposed to the obligations upon an unbelieving family. And you do not have to agree with me. There are Most in my circles would disagree with me on this and would say no if a man has ever had a divorce, if a man has ever been remarried, if a man has ever married someone that's been divorced or remarried, then they are disqualified for ministry. That's how most in my circles, in our circles, would um, take this. I disagree with them. But I also disagree with those that have chosen to conveniently ignore the very clear command in Scripture that divorce is wrong and for a believer is absolutely unacceptable before God. Now, if, if you have been divorced in this room, or listening online, that does not mean you can't be used by God. If you've been divorced after, after being saved, that does not mean you can't be used by God. You can still be used by God greatly as you uh, recognize what you've done wrong and it certainly doesn't mean that, that you, you get divorced from your new spouse to try to undo the, the sin that was done. You don't do that. That's, that. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we undo sin by more sin. But we do recognize that there is something wrong there. And we admit it. And we don't try to compromise the teaching of Scripture to justify our past mistakes. Even if we have to admit that we've made some mistakes. Because who hasn't? And so, Paul as he gives these qualifications, says that one of them is that the man must be a husband of one wife. Now, most will say today, one wife at a time. One wife at a time, and that's how they try to get around this divorce thing. But that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that as a believer, I believe as a believer, some would say ever, a man must not have had any divorce or remarriage. Because God sees that marriage as knit before God. The two become one flesh, the Scriptures say. Jesus Christ taught that. God taught that. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And so that relationship that is sanctified, ordained before God, which I believe happens in, as far as spiritual qualifications for the church, I believe that happens and only when there's a, a born-again spouse. Others would say it happens regardless of whether the, there's saved individuals or not. Regardless, that is the marriage that God sees for, forever. That is the one that He ordains. So if you get divorced and marry again, you have a second wife. It's not one at a time. It's a husband of one wife. And that is the qualification that is given here. He goes on. He says, the man must be vigilant. He must be sober, vigilant, careful, sober, serious, serious about life, serious about things, of good behavior. He must be mature, a mature man. He must be given to hospitality, a hospitable man. He must be apt to teach. He needs to be able to communicate. Not given to wine. He can't be a man that is... Uh, under the control of substances. Wine is the example given here, but we could very easily and rightly and comfortably extend that to controlled substances, drugs, anything that has a mind-altering effect. The man cannot be 
I'll, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 5 that we are to be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but to be filled with the Spirit. The contrast there being that if a man is filling his mind and his heart with a controlled substance or a illicit substance or whatever it might be, if a substance is affecting his ability to reason, to comprehend, and to act, then he cannot be controlled by the Spirit because he's being controlled by that substance. It doesn't just have to be alcohol. It could be drugs as well. It goes on, no striker. That means he's not quarrelsome. He's not looking to pick a fight. Not covetous. Not greedy. Not, of course, greedy of filthy lucre, as Peter told us. One that ruleth his own house, well, his own house, having his children in subjection. He needs to be a good parent, submissive family. Oh, I skipped a phrase there. Patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Excuse me. Patient, not violent, not covetous. Um, maybe I did hit those. Uh, not, uh, a man with a submissive family. And then uh, he needs to not be a novice. Not a new believer. He needs to have had a little bit of spiritual experience. He needs to have fought a few spiritual battles. Lest, the Scriptures say, he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Or, excuse me, verse 6, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, the devil attacks pastors hard. There must be some level of spiritual strength there. A strength that is rarely, if ever, found in a brand new believer as they have not fought the battles yet that have helped them to see Satan's wiles. And the reason why all of this is important The reason why all these things are necessary and the reason why it is important that God's people willingly submit themselves to men of these qualifications when they are called by God to lead a church. The reason why God people ought to be submissive is, is because in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the Scriptures say this, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Because one day I will stand before God and I will have to answer for your souls. And what Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, what he's saying here in Hebrews is that wouldn't it be nice if your ministers could, could watch out for your souls with joy instead of with grief? Isn't it nice when your pastor doesn't have to cry himself to sleep at night because of the soul that is wayward? Isn't it nice when the pastor can rest knowing that his flock trusts him? Isn't it nice when the pastor's not having to constantly fight his own congregation to have them do what God's Word has asked them to do? And so because one day I must stand before God and account for you, the Scriptures say, you ought to be willing to submit to them. So the church is responsible to willingly submit to qualified, and we've taken some time to define that, spiritual leaders. By Paul's own reckoning, the house of Stephanus was a house that had proven themselves to be men of great love for God and of tremendous integrity. 
And when these men are present, it was expected by Paul that the church would willingly submit to his teaching as well as to his correction. So the church is responsible to willingly submit to qualified leaders. Our second point this evening, our third point of this two-part message, final point, is found in verses 19 through 24. Let's look at it together. Back to 1 Corinthians 16. You'll have to give me a moment to turn back there. Beginning in verse 19. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The church is responsible, third and finally, to remove the disobedient from their fellowship. This, uh, the crux of this final point is right there in verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. This phrase is actually in our King James. I, I don't know what it says in other versions, but in, in the King James, it's, it's just a transliteration of the Greek. In the Greek, I would literally read this, anathema maranatha. Anathema maranatha. So anathema maranatha is, is literally just a, an English transliteration of the Greek phrase. And it means to religiously ban someone from personal fellowship, anathema, for the Lord cometh. Maran Atha. To religiously ban someone for per, from personal fellowship for the Lord cometh. Um, in certain circles today, we call it excommunication. Now, the Catholic idea of excommunication is you're removed from the church, therefore you are not going to heaven because they believe that you have to be a part of the church in order to go to heaven. That's nowhere taught in the Bible that you have to be a part of the organized church. You have to be a part of the spiritual church, which is through salvation. And so by declaring someone to be anathema maranatha, we are not condemning them to hell by any means. We are removing them from our fellowship and for the sake of the purity of the church and for the sake of their own repentance, this is a very important responsibility. It's a subset of the previous two responsibilities. Paul is not saying that we should have no personal interaction with people who do not love God. For by saying this, he would contradict his teaching very early in the epistle. May I reference you again to another teaching that we covered in 1 Corinthians. This, this book just co covered so much ground. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, Paul said this, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves 
that wicked person. So this is the concept that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 5, and he's reiterating at the end of the epistle, which is this, that when a, this is not talking about just the unbeliever Joe Schmo on the street. When a person who claims to be a believer in Christ, who claims to be saved by grace through faith, but he is living in open sin, or he is holding to doctrinal heresy, and he knows it's wrong, but he's holding to it anyway. That clearly contradicts the teachings of God's Word. After he has been confronted by the church, if he refuses to repent of his error, whether it's sin or whether it's heresy, and to correct himself and to do what is right, the church has not the option, but the obligation to remove that man from their fellowship until such time as he evidently repents of his sin and seeks help and restoration from God's people. That is the idea. And this point is not just found in 1 Corinthians. It's made all throughout Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Remove him from fellowship, not because now he's an enemy of the church, but because you love him enough to say, we are going to step away from you so that you can see the gravity of your sin. You, we are going to preserve the purity of the church, and we are going to indicate to you through our refusal to fellowship with you just how important it is that you see your sin and that you repent of your sin. As a church, we ought to, we must, separate from ministries that are not walking according to the truth of God's Word. As individuals, we must do the same. As a church, we must do this on an individual basis. And the point is not that they should feel our wrath, feel our coldness, that they should feel like an outsider, but rather they should recognize our love for the purity of the faith and our desire that they would be a part of that purity. And so we remove them from fellowship until such time as they recognize their need to be a part of the purity of the church. This is hard stuff. This is not easy stuff to think about. This is not something that we think about doing with joy. And when we do remove them from our fellowship, we remove them with the understanding that every second of the day, we're waiting to bring them back. We're longing to bring them back. This is perhaps the most difficult responsibility of the church because it is a duty that cannot be performed in pride or in anger. It can only be done properly when it is done through humility, through love, and certainly in great sorrow. For it is meant for the man who, though he claims salvation, is rejecting the commands of Christ the commands of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. But it is still a responsibility of the church and it is such because the church must remain pure. The church must remain pure, both doctrinally and practically. The implications upon the church in Corinth would have been dramatic here, would they not? Recall some of the things going on in the church. 
They had a man in the church fornicating with his mother-in-law. It was now the duty of the church to confront that man and to give him a choice to openly repent of his sin or to be removed from their fellowship. They had men in the church who were going to law one another against unbelievers. They had people in the church abusing their liberties. They had people in the church preaching that Jesus had not risen from the dead. They had people abusing their spiritual gifts. And it was now the duty of the church to confront each one of these people and to give them a choice. Humbly repent of their sin before God or be removed from fellowship. And if he did repent, then the duty of the church would be to restore him. And Galatians chapter 6 teaches us this concept. Verses 1 and 2, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a man truly does come before the church repentant and desirous to be right before God, just as much as it was the duty of the church to withhold them fellowship from them, it is the duty of the church to humbly and lovingly patiently help that man or woman out of their sin and into right fellowship with the Lord. We are to weep with them as they weep. We are to rejoice with them as they rejoice. And we are to follow them all the way to victory. We're to bear their burdens and in doing so, the Scripture says, we fulfill the law of Christ. The bottom line is this. As a church, we are not here to forge our own path to success as we carefully navigate the minefields of contemporary culture and societal expectations. God has not placed upon us as a church the burden of being a part of culture, but trying to leapfrog through all the mines. The church is meant to have its own culture. The church is meant to operate within secular culture, but to be set apart from culture. To be a distinct people group that interacts with the world on such a tremendous level of spirit-enabled integrity and morality and love that we are seen by the world as distinct from them in every area of life. Now, that doesn't mean we have to dress funny. That doesn't mean we have to be socially inept. That doesn't mean we can't understand what's going on in the world. Those are differences. The the Bible doesn't inherently say we have to be different, but the Bible does expect that we will always be distinct. We might look the same. A person may not be able to pick us out in a crowd and say, well, there's a Christian. But when they talk with us, when they hear how we interact with others, see how we interact with others, if they know anything about God and His Word, then they ought to walk away saying that was a Christian. We aren't responsible to make the world think that we're superhumans or that we're sinlessly perfect. We aren't responsible to make the world think that nothing ever goes wrong in Christianity or nothing ever goes wrong in a church. Uh, Boy, we're doing pretty good at uh, making sure the world doesn't think that, huh? 
but we are responsible to maintain the doctrinal and practical purity that makes us different from any other religion, that makes us different from any other type of gathering. What we do here on Sunday is not a social club. We're not just here because we need community involvement. We're not just here because it's fulfilling some sort of uh, deep societal need of ours to interact with people of our uh, mindset. We're here, as commanded, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to learn how to go out into that world and to win others to Christ. We are responsible to live the commands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thereby shining the light of God's truth into the darkness of their hearts. This will not at all cause the world to like us. In fact, on the authority of scriptures, it will most likely cause the world to dislike us. But it will without question prove in their hearts that what we have is genuine. More genuine even than what they see with their eyes or hear with their ears. And for some, it will make them want to have what we have as well. See, because what you have in Christ is more real than anything that you see around you. These things that we have, this cup that I hold in my hand, this Bible that I read, at least the, the ink and the pages, this microphone I'm talking into, these shoes on my feet, I can see them. I can touch them. As far as my perception goes, I know they are real but one day they'll be gone. The unseen, the things that are taught in this Bible, God, salvation, eternal life, righteousness, purity, holiness, obedience, these things that are not seen are far more real because they will last for eternity. When everything else is burned up, those things that are of God will endure. And that's it, right? That's our purpose. This is our reason. This is what God has elected us to, be, to do. This is why we, we are called to be rightly related to Him so that we can show others how to be rightly related to Him. So I guess as we close, the question is this. Are we doing it today? Are we fervently and lovingly contending for sound doctrine? Are we living it? Are we willingly submitting ourselves to the teaching and correction of qualified spiritual leaders? Are we removing in our own lives the disobedient, restoring the repentant in order that we might have a pure and spiritual body to present to the world? This is our charge. This is our responsibility. In just a few moments, we're going to have our sila, and then we're going to quote our memory work for the month. And as we do so, remember what that verse says. Think about it. But if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what we're defending. Newness of life as a church. Are we? How are we doing?
think about these things.